0: This is Terms of Reference podcast number 165.
1: The biggest challenge today is the rollback of press freedom around the world. And we can experience it here, even in the U.S. The current administration's approach to media is radically different from anything we've seen before. And that has really strong knock-on effects in the rest of the world. Many of the things that we're seeing here in the U.S., we've been dealing with those issues since the beginning. That's been our mission.
0: This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Leddick. It's taken me a while to figure out how to introduce today's topic. Not because it's totally radical, but rather because my brain is freaking out that it's something I actually have to introduce at all in the year 2017. So I've decided the best approach is just to dive right in. Today's topic is essentially freedom of the press. Now, while I don't spend my day-to-day life in the United States, I'm definitely an American. And something that is just a part of who I am is an understanding that we need freedom of speech and freedom of the press to ensure human flourishing. I think there's a fairly decent consensus on this around the world. As I've watched events unfold over the past year related to U.S. politics and how it's impacted individuals' ability to distinguish between fact and fiction, and, more importantly, destroyed people's ability to have even the simplest conversations— I'm left wondering if Mike Judge didn't have an amazing crystal ball when he made Idiocracy. Now, I personally remain optimistic we'll all come out of this moment in time better for it. But the fact that it feels like we've stumbled backwards into the 1940s in so many ways is is truly heartbreaking. My guest for today's 165th Terms of Reference podcast is Harlan Mandel. He's the CEO of the Media Development Investment Fund, or MDIF. Their work focuses on supporting independent media around the world, and they do this through a variety of investment vehicles. The work of MDIF has been transformative across the globe. I think today's conversation is important because we talk about how an organization like MDIF supports freedom of the press, how they have evolved over the past 20 years, especially with the advent of digital everything, how events in the U.S. are reverberating across the world, and much more. I spoke with Harlan in New York. But before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor.
1: The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com.
0: Hello, Harlan. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks for having
1: me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Harlan, you are the director the leader of an organization called Media Development Investment Fund, or the Media Development Investment Fund. I call it MDEF. I hope everybody else calls it MDEF.
1: Some people do. Some say MDIF. I think that's what we say these days.
0: MDIF. Okay, great. Where are you located? Where are we talking to you today? So I'm in New York City. New York City, and we're doing this in the middle of July, so I hope you have air conditioning.
1: We do. Thank goodness.
0: <laughs> I'm still recovering from
1: the trip to work, though.
0: Oh, holy smokes. <laughs> I like not to butcher what other organizations are about, so why don't we start by you telling us about what MDIF is about, and we'll start from there.
1: Sure. So, you know, we're, what these days is called an impact investment fund. So, for me, the most important part of that is the word impact and the kind of impact we're trying to have. So, what matters to us is freedom of the press, accountability, transparency, access to information, media diversity, and democratic change. So these are the things that we're trying to promote around the world. And we do that by helping with the development and strengthening of independent media companies around the world.
0: So you're just Um, trying to solve a few small problems
1: to relatively niche market. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I would just say, you know, I think most of us, especially you right now, I would assume have a, a strong Sense of the power of media, and that's why you know we feel this is such an important kind of company to be working with and strengthening.
0: You've been around for a while. Is that how it's truly started? You know, investors got together and said we want to do impact investing, or has that been sort of an evolution in what your what your organization seeks?
1: Well, we were formed in 1995. We did our first loans in 1996, and you know back then those words didn't exist you know impact investing nobody had spoken them venture philanthropy mission investing you know all of these concepts didn't hadn't really been framed yet you know we were formed as a specific solution for a specific problem and that was you know lack of access to capital that media companies were experiencing in you know originally in eastern europe and the former soviet union and quickly it became clear that that problem existed all over the world. And the solution was needed all over the world. So the industry kind of grew up around us. You know, there were no conferences, there were no articles about it or periodicals dedicated to it. None of that existed.
0: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't sexy, in other words. Um, So before we dive into the community of impact investing and that kind of thing, I think it's important, like, what are the nuts and bolts of how MDIF works? You know, if you, a quick glance at your website, you know, it's clear you know, you provide financing of a sort to these media companies. And from what I can tell, it's loans, but it's also equity, but the majority is loans. Like what are the, just take us really briefly through those mechanisms and how you make a decision between them and those kinds of things.
1: Sure. And maybe I I could go back a little bit, keying off of what the previous thing we were discussing you know how we started sure of course so, you know we started as i said in the mid 90s and that was a time it was a few years after the fall of the berlin wall and the wars in yugoslavia were raging and there were two phenomena going on so one in a large part of the world there were independent media companies starting up for the first time you know because they had not been allowed to operate previously you know and at the same time in yugoslavia it was you know quite well recognized by the international community that media and the manipulation of media and news and information was a key component of what created that conflict you know the way it was uh, Slobodan Milosevic and other leaders of the region you know took advantage to create conflict where there really hadn't been ethnic conflict previously so at the time all of these media companies were largely being supported as almost as nonprofits, even though they were formed as companies. Um, And I would say the innovation that our organization brought to the table was to treat them as companies and to recognize that they really needed significant capital to grow, just like any company. And at the same time, they really needed strong management to be successful. Mm -hmm. So where the field had been dominated previously by journalism training, we injected into the field, the idea of really building sustainable media companies that could stand on their own feet and truly be independent. So, the mechanisms that we used to do that originally, the idea was just give them capital. So, originally, we started off as loans, and our name originally was Media Development Loan Fund. And our founder, this guy named Sasha Vucinic, brilliant former journalist from Yugoslavia, he had the insight you know, originally that access to capital was, was the critical thing. But when they went to make their first loans, and this was in 1996, it quickly became clear that the companies that we were trying to work with, they couldn't even put together a real business plan. Mm-hmm. So we really needed to help them from the ground up. And you know, back in those days we we would start working with the company by training them how to use Excel. It was you know that fundamental. So a lot of this has changed. The companies we work with are much more sophisticated often than they were back then because the you know, the world in many ways is, is more sophisticated. But the core proposition that we offer remains the same so it's access to capital without strings attached meaning that you know we once we've confirmed the quality and impact of the news and information that a company is providing we do not get involved in their editorial process and that's what's unique i would say about our funding for news organizations in the developing markets that we work in there is access to capital but people want to control what these companies are, are communicating mm. to the citizens
0: when somebody somebody gets a loan or an equity injection from you is it I mean, you've emphasized management you don't emphasize that piece of it is it also used for equipment is it used for connectivity for bandwidth for for other things or do you have a specific
1: portfolio that you constraint to what the money can be used for So our goal is to strengthen the economic base of the companies that we're working with. So our financing is almost always geared around some growth project. And that really varies depending on the company and the media. So for TV stations, for example, we would finance a stronger transmitter that could increase their reach and their audience size or construction of transmitters across a broader geography. Or, you know, in some cases, it's a building, a base of operations that can improve the quality of the production values that they're doing. For digital media, you know, often, you know, there's not a lot of equipment involved. Most of it is people. And so most of our financing in that case is working capital, but for specific initiatives, for example, you know, moving into different, covering new kinds of content or, you know, new areas or maybe moving into an additional language things that are going to grow their audience and their reach.
0: Mm. I feel like I'd love for you to give our audience a sense of what kind of impact you can have when you either stand up or embolden a media company in a place like the former Yugoslavia or some of these places in Africa where you work now. I don't want to steal your thunder. So like, you know, what's your go-to story when you talk about the kind of power that this kind of work has?
1: Yeah, I, so we've worked with over 100 companies now in, in over 30 different countries. So I could tell you stories all day. Because most of these books are pretty amazing. To give you just a couple, one that I would flag is a company called Malaysia Kini in Malaysia. So they you know, started off back around 2000 at a time when you know all media in Malaysia was you know one way or the other controlled by the government and you know and heavily censored, uh, you know very limited licensing only to government friends, let's say. And what was interesting. Back then was the guy who ran the country, Prime Minister Matir. He wanted to attract investment from dot-coms. You know, it was you know the dawn of the dot-com age, and he wanted Malaysia to be a, the dot-com hub for, for Southeast Asia. And so he was, let's say, the online community convinced him that to do that, he had to promise not to censor anybody on the Internet. And, you know, that created an opportunity for Malaysia Kini to come into existence, you know, an an open shop in the middle of Kuala Lumpur and start providing independent journalism, you know, in a very open way, you know, with people signing their articles and, you know, not being underground or anything like that. So, that company has now grown to be the, you know, number one news site in Malaysia. Wow. Um, Holy cow. Yeah. And... Two founders, Pramish Chandran and Stephen Gann, you're fantastic guys. You know, They do great journalism, they understand technology in a very deep way as well. And um, to give you a sense of their impact, before Malaysia Keeney, nobody could really get an accurate picture of what was happening with, with elections in Malaysia. The most recent election, about 25% of the country was on Malaysia Keeney's website on election night to understand what was really happening. That's a lot of people it's a lot of people. They were getting, you know, 500,000 hits a minute on their site. It was was tremendous, you know, and luckily they had really strengthened their operations so they could handle that much traffic.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, But it gives you a sense of, you know, the demand that there is for reliable information in what short supply it is.
0: And in that Um, particular case, you know, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole quite yet in our conversation, but they've built a reputation over over time that people do consider them credible and reliable and a go to source for what is the truth, yes?
1: Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. and their you know their revenue model in a way is, is related to that. So they long before the New York Times put up their paywall, Malaysia Bikini put up a paywall as a way to, you know, get their readers to actually participate in the company's future. And that was a time when, you know, you may remember everybody said nobody will pay for I was just going to say this is,
0: yeah, this is early on. So they, I mean, they they were, let's not say innovators, but they were just bold and saying, you know what, this is good enough that people are going to be willing to pay for it. Yes,
1: yes. And we, we actually strongly encouraged them to do that because that was after the first dot-com crash. It was clear that it was going to be a long time before online advertising in Malaysia got to the point that it could support them and they needed to go to a subscription model. What's interesting is, in a way, it's much more like the national public radio model here in the US, you know, because the truth is, you know, so for example, for many years, the security service in Malaysia was, you know, every day scraping all the content from Malaysia Kini and then posting it on another site called Free Malaysia Kini as a way to undermine their ability to survive on mm. uh, on their income. So really nobody had to subscribe to Malaysia Kini to get access to their content, but they continue to do so. That's fantastic. So I'd love to go
0: down the pathway of understanding the evolution of where you started in the 90s and you know now we're in 2017 looking at 2018 at this stage how has the way media is evolving changed your interaction with these companies or changed how you think their powers or what your your hand in that process can be
1: mm-hmm. So the the media industry has you know obviously gone through extraordinary change in recent times because of what's commonly called digital disruption and you know when we started the best journalism was generally being done by newspapers and many of our clients for let's say the first half of our history, were newspapers. The majority of them were, and we financed many of the first independent printing houses around the world. And it was a great investment, right? You know, because you have a nice piece of equipment that you could, you know, take as security. It freed the newspaper from the chokehold of you know, state-owned printing houses. It freed a lot of other newspapers also from that chokehold and it created a you know a whole new revenue source for these companies from printing for other people. And it reduced their operating costs. So it was a great way to support independent media. You know, the printing business had an innovation maybe every five years if you were lucky and it was pretty small. So it was a business that you could really understand and predict. And in a way most of the risk of doing something like that was the political risk of the environment. It wasn't the actual business that you were financing. You know, flash forward to the last 10 years and you know there's an innovation in media in digital media like every five minutes it feels like it's a constantly evolving (laughs) business believe you me as somebody who puts on a podcast that is the truth I know you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> You're living it every day just like we are. And the nature of the business is completely different. You know, so just take advertising sales. What I like to say, you know, it used to be about martinis and now it's about algorithms. You know, it's mm. it's not the same person who can sell advertising now, right? It's a totally
0: unpack sales. that for me because I doubt that many of our listeners we will totally get that you know like it used to be about taking your clients out and pulling down the big clients and saying okay hey you're gonna buy an advertising package for x number of spots and whatnot but now it's like you know it's facebook you know advertising or it's google adwords and these kinds of things maybe you explain
1: it well i think you just explained it really well and one way it's like used to be mad men Mm -hmm. the tv show about you know the old advertising world you know and now it's silicon valley Right. Right. The, it's really a different. So most of the ads today online, they're not sold person to person. They're sold almost instantaneously through online auction networks. And they call it real time bidding. And so the art of advertising sales now is not in many cases, and I, and I should you know, give that caveat that there are still you know, ki- certain kinds of advertising that are you know, sold directly from person to person. Right? by you know convincing sure. somebody that you've got you can deliver a really powerful campaign for them. But most of online advertising is done programmatic. It's called programmatic advertising, and you manage it you know at your desktop by shifting algorithms all the time to try to understand how the market is moving online and how do you respond to it and how do you make changes to your website to your social media feeds, to all of these things to maximize the amount of ads you can sell and the price you can get for it. So it's a very different kind of skill set. And it's in particular in the countries where we work, you know, and and we work in, you know, emerging markets, frontier markets. So, you know, our geographic range goes from, you know, Ukraine down to Zimbabwe, from Guatemala to Malaysia, all over Latin America, Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe. We're there. And these skill sets are in very high demand in those countries. So it really changes the game for media companies as they move into digital media.
0: So are you able to see into the future? Like one of the questions I like to say is, you know, you're keeping up. I mean, obviously you've evolved and you're able to not only provide access to financing, but let's let's say technical support for, for lack of a better term to these organizations. But, you know, are you able to see two or three years out right now and kind of help guide these organizations about not only the human resources they need, but maybe new equipment, new outlet, new advertising options, new business models,
1: those kinds of things? Well, we like to think so. You'll have to ask me again in two to three years (laughs) to see how well we're doing. But there are a few pieces to it. So, you know, one, we're placing bets. You know, we are an investment fund. So we're putting down money, right, based on our view of, of what the future is. And for digital media, there are a few different ways that we see the field moving that can be the basis for successful businesses that you know achieve the mission outcomes that we're looking for. And it varies country to country, you know, so we see advertising based models still, you know, being viable in, in larger countries like India, for example. You know, those are places where cost structure is, you know, it's relatively low, the demand is huge. And India is one of the few countries where, you know, newspapers continue to be strong. You know, it's they have newspapers with eight million subscribers. It's a huge number. You know, the New York Times mm-hmm. at its height was about one and a half million. And it's still extremely strong business wise. But that you know moment is receding. Eventually it will go away. And there will be, you know, we believe there are a few key players that can you know be the future of you know independent journalism in India. One of them is called Scroll. It's a great digital media company that started a couple of years ago. And they've been you know, kind of sweeping all the journalism awards in India. They have a very lean model, you know, because there's an old way of producing content that involves a lot of people. There's a new way of producing content that can be done by many fewer people. And often, that as I said, the skill set, even on the journalism side, you know, is very different from what it used to be. So if you can start off with folks... Who are you know native to that kind of form of news production that you really understand social media and the role of social media in you know in reaching an audience? You have a chance to disrupt the existing media ecosystem, and we believe India is a place where it really needs to be disrupted. The mainstream media there is not at all reliable. Mm.
0: Do you find like so? Let's just say that India wants to be disrupted across your network. Do you find, for instance, like will people look to Malaysia Kini? for some of their models and do you facilitate those conversations about saying hey you know what really worked in zimbabwe or what really worked in ukraine was this and maybe you should do that or do you not you kind of leave it to them
1: no no absolutely i think one of the strengths is we've been able to build up a network of companies that face very similar challenges all around the world so to give you you know a great example so for the past year the ceo of malaysia kini has been our entrepreneur in residence Mm, cool Uh, and Mm -hmm. and he's been going around you know helping other media companies you know do what malaysia kini's been able to do and that's you know he's been working with companies in Zimbabwe, in Myanmar. This is the way that we, you know, leverage our best, most successful companies.
0: Are you able to tell us like what an average size investment might be, either in the loan or the equity, you know, whatever products that you put on the street. Are we talking in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars or what does it look like?
1: It's a pretty big range. So, you know, I can tell you the smallest loan we ever made was five thousand dollars. Awesome. You know, the big the biggest investment we ever made was, uh, you know, nine million dollars. So it's a pretty big range. Generally, you know, we don't like to go under a hundred thousand dollars. Our average financing at the moment is about eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And in a way, that number is, is reducing because investment for digital media is often much smaller than sure. it was for, for example, to build a printing house.
0: I'm really fascinated that you guys started in the 90s and now you're looking at 20s. I, you know, just the evolution of the media business, obviously, it's on the tip of my tongue or something I look at every day. What are the challenges that you bump up against every day and maybe that you're looking at for the future? Is it just sort of getting access and getting in there and being awareness about this? Is it getting some of the people that you've invested in or some of the companies you've invested in, that get shut down? You know, Is it still kind of the old school, hey, we don't have a free press kind of stuff? Or what are the biggest
1: hurdles? Well, I think that the biggest challenge today is the rollback of press freedom around the world. So the all of the you know there are a bunch of indices that kind of measure press freedom. You know, freedom House puts out one, another organization called Reporters Without Borders. And you know, according to all of those indices, there's been a significant rollback of press freedom in many, many countries. And we can experience it here, even in the u s. you know the the current administration's approach to, media is, you know, radically different from anything we've seen before. And that has, you know, really strong knock-on effects in the rest of the world. You know, so a number of months ago, for example, Cambodia, the government in Cambodia increased their criticism and their control of media there, and they pointed to what Trump said about media being the enemy of the people and, you know, accused them, you know, basically attached the fake news label to what is... Legitimate news. Many of the things that we're seeing here in the U.S., you know, you know, we've been dealing with those issues since the beginning. That's been our mission, and I don't think the U.S. will ever experience it the way other countries have experienced it. But the effects here, what's happening here, does have a very strong effect because. You know, in a way, the, you know, U.S. journalism has kind of been the beacon for journalism around the world in many ways. And the U.S. principles of freedom of the press has also been a beacon that can be referenced. And, you know, as that light becomes dimmer, it becomes dimmer in the rest of the world. Here we've been talking about alternative facts. It's like a new, <laughs> a new idea that was introduced. Sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. It's nothing, you know, in the rest of the world it's just called propaganda. And it is being legitimized what's happening
0: here you know i it's not our place necessarily to be political in this but yeah i'm sorry no no it's 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 fine i'm I'm fascinated by this conversation simply because you know i spend most of my time in bangkok and it's a place where if you put a if you put a facebook page up that is you know negative towards the royal family you can find yourself in jail for 20 years and that's Mm -hmm. it's literally that simple you know we know cases of that but I'm, i'm just wondering about the fact that you know, when you started this in the 90s, it was still, as you said, you know, you're, you're building buildings, you're putting up a, a printing press, those kinds of things. Now it's, you know, a couple thousand dollars can get you a very attractive looking website and put together, you know, w- enough working capital to fund some what looks like legitimate stuff out there. And are you finding that, the you know, the companies you've invested in, this is, They're sort of at war now, like this is, you know, they're combating this and are they being successful or or is this something where they're saying, you know, we still have the upper hand and, you know, we
1: shall prevail kind of stuff. So you're just to make sure I answer you properly. You're you're kind of talking about the fake news phenomenon. Sure, that, yeah, it, it's you know it's, it's just very easy for somebody to put up a website and spread you know make up stuff and make it look like legitimate not news. yeah not
0: not only not only fake news and you know from just sort of having a website stand up but you know they can buy ads you know they can place uh, advertisements on Facebook they can place advertisements in, in on Google you know that look legitimate looks like real stuff. But and there, it's for the average consumer of information, it's really difficult to tell what's legitimate and what's not legitimate.
1: Yeah. And again, I think that's something that varies country to country. So there, I think countries that have people who have lived in these environments for a long time actually are much better equipped than people in the U.S. are to draw those distinctions.
0: That's a really interesting. That's okay. Touche. You know? Touche. Yeah. Okay. And you know maybe it's. Maybe this is the American in me saying, ah, this is such a huge thing, but I, you know. But I I do want to draw a caveat there. So, mm -hmm. you know, in
1: in a way, you could look at Russia, and, you know, there, there was a long history of, you know, reading between the lines to understand what was really going on, right? You know, under, in Soviet times, you know, everything that was being produced was propaganda. So, but there was something there. People had an understanding of how to kind of read between the lines and pick out what was true from everything else around it. Whether that you know, to what extent has that survived to today? And as you say, I, I think the tools that folks who want to put false information across are much more powerful. So in Russia, in particular, I think the government there has been very effective in using TV, especially, and to a lesser degree, you know, online media to really disinform the population there. That being said, like I said, there are a lot of people who can who can see through that. But it's you know we're looking to work with companies that have established a kind of trust relationship with their audience. They're never going to be able to have that trust relationship with everybody. But even for folks who may not agree with their point of view, let's say, I think they're, the fundamental accuracy of what they're saying is understood. You know, another example, election example from Montenegro. So we work with a company there called TV VSD. VSD means truth. You know, in that country, you know, if you look at elections, it's it's pretty evenly split between the two sides, let's say, in that country. And despite that, you know, on election night, 80 percent of the TV audience was on TVVSD, right? Watching TVVSD because wow. they, knew they were the ones who were going to, regardless of what the outcome was, they were going to present the accurate view of it as opposed to public television there, which is is not public television in the sense like the BBC or or NPR. It's state-controlled media.
0: One final question down this rabbit hole that we're in right now is... (laughs) We're going pretty deep. It was this.
1: And I'm not telling you stories.
0: No, 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 no. I I actually really appreciate it. I wish we had three hours to talk about it, right? But to what extent is every company a media company now? Have you played Uh, a part or are you having a... (laughs) role in this conversation now where every company has a website, every company is advertising, everybody that out there, essentially information, You know, we trade on information
1: everywhere. What are your thoughts on that? So I think it's true in a sense. And in a way, I think it's, it's there's a much bigger phenomenon going on there, right? It's the way that internet has given people direct access to original sources, Right. So whether that's a company that wants to talk about what they're doing, or whether it's Human Rights Watch who wants people to see their report, before nobody was had an easy way to get a Human Rights Watch report. They read about it in a newspaper. Right now, you know, it's very easy. They can maybe hear about it in the newspaper, but they can go and read the original source if they want to. And I think that's in both of those cases, you know, business wanting to talk to an audience, and other people who are producing information you know how people connect to it has changed radically you know and for us you know it actually you know we started diving into that question very deeply around 2011 2012 we, we went through a whole process of rethinking our mission you know how does that kind of change affect our mission and I think that's interesting previously I think we always defined ourselves as you know our mission was the support of independent journalism but we took a look at what our real goals were and it was that you know list of things that I've Said at the beginning of this interview, right? Accountability, transparency, democratic participation, and you know, we felt you know as an organization we had to recognize that there there's a much broader category of businesses that can advance that mission than just journalism organizations because of the power of technology. So we've been investing in companies, you know, still many of our companies are journalism based and you know, news organizations, but we are, we're investing in a wider range of companies that are looking to, you know, leverage that direct contact between people and information. So for example, in, in Brazil, we've been working with a company called Colab. And, you know, what their business is, is, you know, essentially it's a social network that's built around an app. And it lets people communicate directly with local governments about, you know, very kind of micro issues that they face. You know, everything from, you know, trash collection to identifying locations, you know, Zika outbreaks and dengue outbreaks. Uh, And also they've been able to use that platform for the participatory budget process, which is a new phenomenon in Brazil, Um, but it really enables participatory government in a new kind of way. And there's no journalism involved there, right? It's citizen created information. And for us, what's important is the platform also allows folks to then track how the government is responding to those issues. So it's a great mechanism for promoting accountability and transparency another model like that we've been working with in india it's a great company called gramvani and they they're using cell phones to create social networks for people who are you know poor and illiterate which is a large part of the population of India still. And, you know, they're in a way they've been left behind by the digital age, right? Because if you can't if you're illiterate, it's very hard to take advantage of the internet. So this is a system that lets people call in, you know, choose whether they wanna, you know, hear music or hear news or report. A story of corruption, or report, you know, a disease outbreak, and you know, roll up that information and you know, get it out there. Both by communicating to the people on the ground, you know, who are who are using the system, but then also making governments and other news organizations aware of those issues. Again, they're not creating content themselves; it's all citizen-created content.
0: Mm. Harlan, as with most guests, I feel like we could probably have a conversation for several more hours here. But I have two more questions for you that okay. I ask everyone I'll on I'll try the to show. be more succinct. Not at all. <laughs> Who do you pay attention to other than obviously this network of media companies and, and obviously other new companies that you're investing in, as you were just describing? Mm-hmm. Who do you pay attention to to stay up to date about new trends, about new stuff, about new innovations, especially in the media world? Is there a Twitter feed? Is there a blog post? Is there a, an author or some other feed that you would recommend to our audience?
1: There are so many, I have to say. You know, the if I were to pick out, you know, one or two, the, you know, one Courts, I think, is a great thing to be reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they capture kind of general innovation around the world in a very nice way. And they themselves are, are I think, very innovative in how they're approaching content and media. The other things, I think, are much more geared to professionals. You know, it's the nature of feeds that I don't really know what they're called. They just show up. (laughs) Sure, exactly. That's why we all have media readers, right? (laughs) Uh, In terms of trends, I think the, you know, one thing that I'm really taken by you know, in recent years, is the development of investigative reporting networks. The kind of the most, I'd say, famous results of that is Panama Papers, which was produced by the you know, International Consortium of Independent Journalists. And again, you know, it's they're able to use new technologies to approach investigations in a completely different way. Cross-border investigations are incredibly powerful. And so much of what is wrong in the world is multinational these days. And, you know, with, with the Panama Papers... You had stories affecting 79 different countries being produced by a far-flung network of investigative journalists. Similarly, in Brazil, the Odebrecht scandal. So it's a giant Brazilian construction company that's been the centerpiece of you know one of the biggest corruption scandals ever in Brazil. But they operated in many, many countries, and there's now you know a network of investigative journalists around Latin America who've, who've Taken what started in Brazil and you know made it a continent-wide story because it was they were just bribing people all over the world. So and I think that's something that is going to grow more and more.
0: So maybe my last question you may have already just answered, but the last question specifically is there something outside the media world or outside what your organization does that is an innovation, a shiny new object, a process, a technology, a, a thing? That you you know it doesn't get enough attention, or it's just emerging now, and you think it deserves a shout out that you'd like to let our audience
1: know about. You know, it's something that I call the power of resilience, and to give you a good example of what I mean by that, so we work with a a radio network in Nepal called Ujalo, and they are so they they own and operate a radio station in Kathmandu and in the two next largest cities in Nepal but their programming is carried by 175 stations around the country so they grew up in a kind of haphazard way so they had their operations spread over you know four or five locations around Kathmandu so you know we provided financing for them to construct you know one single headquarters where they could bring it all together with a much more powerful transmitter on top and the founder of that company who you know really is a visionary guy. He had two conditions for that building. One, that it'd be earthquake proof and two, that it be solar powered. So because of that, when the earthquake hit Nepal a couple of years ago, they were the only nationwide broadcaster besides the, the state broadcasting network that was left standing because they had, they were still, their building was still there with their transmitter on top and they were solar powered. So they could stay in operation. And because of that, they were able to provide really critical information about you know, how to access shelter and food, your medical services and construction resources around the country. And we talk a lot about resilience, I think now in the environmental sense, but I think it has, you are know, thinking about the importance of resilience in many different parts of industry you're certainly in the media field you know it's a critical infrastructure as far as we're concerned um and making sure that it's resilient is as important as as far as we're concerned as important as you know making sure your dams or your transportation systems are resilient
0: harlan this has been a fascinating conversation i hope that we'll have the ability to continue it sometime in the future but thank you for being a guest on the show
1: today really a pleasure. Great talking to you.
0: Hey guys, if you get value out of these conversations like this one with Harlan, could you just do me a second, take another 10 seconds out of your day and click a review on iTunes. Five stars would be great if you can, or just leave an honest feedback on iTunes or share this on Twitter or Facebook with your community. And of course, if you have a question, if you have a comment or you want to just interact, hit me up on either Twitter, Facebook, or on our blog.